Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, being a teenager has always been hard, writes clinical psychologist and adolescent mental health expert Lisa Damore. But she says coming of age amid a global pandemic, intense political division, and a national reckoning with police violence makes the work of a teenager, or raising one, that much more difficult. We talked to Damore about how to help the teens in our lives navigate the powerful emotions they feel and why she thinks we should all become less afraid of painful feelings like anger, frustration, and sadness. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. In today for Mina Kim. The pandemic was horrible for everyone, writes clinical psychologist and adolescent mental health expert Lisa Damore. But it was especially difficult for teenagers because it, quote, derailed the central development tasks of adolescents, including spending time with peers and gaining independence. Symptoms of depression and anxiety doubled during the pandemic, she explains, and that's leaving worried parents and caregivers wondering how best to help their teens navigate the intense and painful emotions they're experiencing. Dr. Lisa Damore, who co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, is here to help. Her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Dr. Lisa Damore, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thanks for being on. I have a just-turned-10-year-old, so I'm going to be taking close notes this entire hour (laughs) about what's ahead. Um, And I was hoping we could kind of level set to begin. So, you know, I said at the top that we got new numbers recently from the CDC, um, pretty startling statistics. More than 40% of high school kids said they felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021. Nearly 20% said they've made a suicide plan. Can you just talk about those findings and, and kind of your general response to them? Is it surprising to you given the clinical work you do? 
You know, those numbers were so distressing to see, um, but I will say they map on to what we were seeing clinically at the time those data were collected, which was the fall of 2021. Mm-hmm. And the survey asked teenagers about their mood over the previous year. And I've been practicing for nearly 30 years, and I've never seen teenagers so miserable as a group as they were during and through the pandemic. And so as alarming as those numbers were, they unfortunately were not entirely surprising. I mean, you say during and through the pandemic, obviously, any any human can know that there are, are fallouts from the pandemic that we're still sort of just realizing, right? But is it your sense that some of this has gotten slightly better since 2021, Is since we've started to come out of this? Anecdotally, yes. What I can say for those of us who care for teenagers is that for a lot of teenagers, having things return to normal, getting to go back to school, getting to go back to their activities and live their lives made an enormous difference in terms of how they felt. But that doesn't mean there weren't teenagers who were knocked off their developmental trajectories in the pandemic and are still struggling to find their feet. And there are certainly teenagers who um, had a devastating impact from the pandemic, and we are still working to help them find their way through. It it seems from these this data that girls, teens of color, those who identify as LGBTQ are having an even tougher time. What do we know about that and why? You know, it's not entirely clear why there was such a huge disparity um, among groups, but there are some things that can help inform our understanding. So one thing that is sort of a, a cardinal rule in psychology is that When distressed, girls tend to collapse in on themselves, whereas boys tend to act out. Mm -hmm. So girls are more likely to develop depression and anxiety. Boys are more likely to get themselves in trouble or be hard on the people around them. Um, And these were self-report data. So part of what we wonder when we look at results like this is thinking, well, the girls may have been doing a very, you know, straightforward job of reporting that they were feeling very depressed and sad and anxious. The boys may have been either less aware or not even asked so much about how they were manifesting their distress, maybe, and being hard on folks around them. So that may explain some of it. Um, But we also know that boys mask depression, that um, boys are not actually given a lot of room in our culture to express vulnerable emotions. So boys who are feeling very sad may have actually um, felt compelled to hide it. So that's some of how we think about those big disparities we saw. What about for for teens of color? Um, is this, I mean, obviously there's so many layers to sort of uh, racial identity and, and the history in our society, but is there, I don't know, any data that, that indicates, I mean, I mentioned at the top, you know, this all came about not just the pandemic, racial reckoning, political discord. Um, it, do you think that that plays into some of those findings as well? I think it does, you know, and we think about the experiences of marginalized adolescents, that they live with a higher level of stress as a baseline than teenagers who are not marginalized. And then the way that psychologists think about stress, we think about it as a cumulative process. So marginalized adolescents went into the pandemic already experiencing higher levels of stress, and then the pandemic stress was layered on top of that. So one of the concerns that we had through and now, even at this point with regard to the pandemic, is that kids who were vulnerable were made all the more vulnerable by the extreme stress of the pandemic. Yeah. I wonder if you can kind of contextualize this for us, because the numbers are really startling and scary. And I I just wonder how they compare to data from a decade ago or even pre-pandemic. Is this 
How big of a shift is this? It's a pretty big shift. And I think we're going to have a much better understanding of what to make of it when we see the next round of data, mm. right? If we see things continue in that trajectory or if we see things ease back. But that said, we were seeing rising rates of depression and anxiety in teenagers before the pandemic. Um, starting somewhere around 2010, those numbers started going up. We were concerned already. And then, of course, the pandemic did not help in any way. I wonder, I mean, you know, as somebody in the media, we hear about um, that, you know, if you talk about suicide in a in, in an unsafe manner that, you know, it can lead to sort of in, increasing thoughts of that. Or I don't I just wonder, like, how we're thinking about mental health differently if we're talking about it more as a society, if that could lead to kids just being more open about some of these things. Or on the flip side, if, if there's any concern among psychologists that if we talk about this stuff, it becomes more real. Like, how, how do you kind of square that? It's a real tension. Um, and, and it's something we're trying to sort through. So on the one hand, it is so important that we talk about the crisis in youth mental health, that we come up with solutions, that we take it seriously. On the other hand, we also want to tell the story of teenagers who are finding their way through um, resilient and thriving because we don't want to tell a story about teenagers as though they are all broken right. or not capable of, of coming through hard times because so many of them have. So we need to find our way. And with regard to the question about what does it mean to talk about adolescent suicide, I think it's critically important that we have that conversation. And I think it's critically important that we equip parents to know what to do if they are worried about their teenager, which is just to ask. If you're worried that your teenager might be suicidal, you can ask them. Asking will not make them more, you know, will not give them the idea. Um, and the language I would encourage parents to use if they're concerned is to say, you know, this may seem sort of out of the blue, but, you know, fill in why the parent has the reason to be concerned and say, you know, I'm just I need to know if you had any thoughts of um, harming yourself or ending your life. That kind of question is um, often very reassuring to the parents. And it just, you know, allows us to bring the question right into focus. But we do want to also focus on what works for teens. Teens do well when they are able to engage in purposeful activities. Teens do well when they are surrounded by caring adults. There's a huge amount we know about how to care for teenagers, and we want that in the conversation, too. Is there any risk of, like, not that it's necessarily contagious, but, I mean, do you find that kids talking with one another about their own anxiety, depression, mental health struggles is helpful, or can it be harmful depending on the context? I think that there's a huge amount of support that teenagers garner from one another. Um, the times when I get concerned about how teenagers talk about their mental health struggles is when there's a hopelessness about recovery. Mm. One thing that we know as psychologists is that we are really good at treating depression and we are really good at treating anxiety. And sometimes for some teenagers, there can be an element of that conversation that makes depression or anxiety seem more like a life sentence than the way we think about it clinically. So while I think it's really valuable for teenagers to talk about mental health concerns with one another and with adults, as a psychologist, I would also want part of that conversation to be about all of the things that we can do to treat depression, to help people 
um, manage anxiety because we really do feel very hopeful and have a lot of resources at our disposal. Does that track also in how we should or should not express our own mental health struggles to our kids? Like how how do you think about that? Because I could see that in some ways it could be really reassuring to know that like your mom or dad has also had these challenges. On the other hand, we're their safe spot, right? So we don't want to like freak them out with that instability. Yeah, I think um, it's a good story to tell when you've come to the happy end of that story, right? Mm -hmm. And and share it. But I also think one of the most important things that can happen right now is for the adults around teenagers to make a distinction between emotional distress and a mental health concern. Because those are actually two very different things. So emotional distress is just part of life. We're all going to have ups and downs through our days and our weeks. And teenagers especially are going to have pronounced ups and downs because that's how they're built. That is not on its own grounds for concern about mental health. We only worry about a mental health concern if the emotion doesn't make sense, right? If it feels like it doesn't fit the context at all, or if the way it's being managed is destructive. So if the beloved family pet dies and a teenager is deeply sad, Mm -hmm. that distress is painful for them, painful for the adult to see, but it's actually evidence of the teenager's mental health. And then what we want to see is, do they cope in ways that are effective and do no harm, such as weeping or reaching out for support or putting on their sad playlist to get some sad feelings out or going for a run to take their mind off of it? All of that is excellent. We want to see that kind of healthy coping. We don't want to see coping that is costly, whether it's abusing substances or tearing at the fabric of relationships or being harmful to themselves. But a lot of distress in adolescence has always and everywhere been part of being a teenager. And I think the challenge right now in this post-pandemic environment, especially with so many distressing headlines, is to tease apart garden variety, expectable but painful distress in teenagers from mental health concerns. Absolutely. That is actually one of my favorite parts of your message in this book. And I want to dig in deeper to it after the break. We're talking to Lisa Damore. She's a clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. Her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. And we want to hear from you. Is a teen in your life feeling persistently anxious, sad or depressed or angry? And how have you tried to help them? What's worked? What questions do you have? What advice do you need? Or do you have difficulty talking to your teen or questions about when to seek professional help for your child? You can email us at forum at kqed.org or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. And please give us a call. We want you to be part of this conversation. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back in just a moment with Dr. Lisa Damore. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos here in Fermina Kim today, and we are talking about the mental health of teenagers and how we as parents and caregivers can help them with Lisa Damore, clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. Her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Um, and Lisa, I mean, we were hitting on this before the break, but I really want to dig into it. This One of the central premises of your book, based on both your clinical work and, you know, all the research um, that you and others do, is this idea that, like, for teenagers, you say powerful emotions are a feature, not a bug. And as somebody who remembers being a very emotional teenager myself, um, I, I, th- this struck really close. And I, I could see, though, how it's hard for some parents to kind of, you know, disentangle what is something more serious and what is just these kind of healthy emotions and, you know, the roller coaster you go through through puberty and beyond. So talk a little bit more about that. And and how do you encourage parents to kind of think about and understand this? So it is hard to parent a teenager because their emotions are very powerful. They're more powerful than kids' emotions or adults' emotions. And it can feel like a roller coaster. So I think the most reassuring thing I can offer as a psychologist is to tell parents when I really want them to be worried. And then if they're not seeing that, the rest is the spicy richness of having a teenager. (laughs) Spicy richness. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) So here's when I want parents to be worried. And here's where I want them to get extra help. We expect teenage mood to go up and down. It should not go to a concerning place and stay there. So if they see that, they should reach out for help. We should not see emotions running the show. Emotions are informative, they're useful, even painful ones, but they should not be calling the shots. We do not want to see teenagers who are feeling so low or so anxious that they can't do the things that they need and want to do. And we do not want to see what I call costly coping. We don't want to see teenagers who are managing distress in ways that turn out to have problems down the line, either harmful to others, harmful to themselves, you know, maybe offering immediate relief, but coming with a price tag. Mm -hmm. If you don't see those three things, you're almost certainly looking at the the normal but challenging intensity that comes with being a teenager. And what I I want parents to um, know that around that, their role as much as they can is to try to be a steady presence, to try to um, not become unduly anxious when their teenagers become upset because our teenagers look to us for information about how worried they should be. And so if they're very upset and then we get very upset with them, it can actually make them feel more concerned and more anxious than they need to be. Yeah. And I mean, you write about how we've kind of as a society moved into this place where we think that like we should all be happy and joyful and comfortable all the time. Uh, But, you know, as a parent, I think about this a lot, like part of growth and and life is learning how to deal with hard situations, right? So like some of this is our own is our, is working on ourselves, right? To be like, okay, I don't need to protect my child from everything. Absolutely. And and I think we can make the case. I will make the case for why you 
don't want to be trying to prevent distress across the board in your kid. So one reason is you actually can't. So it's, right. it's, sort of, it's not a good not a good use of your energy. Another reason is it's informational. The part of how we navigate our lives is by paying attention to what helps us to feel good, solid, and relaxed, and what helps us to feel, you know, makes us feel easy and uncomfortable. You know, if there's somebody we have, every time we have a lunch with them, we walk away feeling energized and terrific. We should have more lunch with that person. If there's someone where every time we're with them, we feel sort of diminished or insulted, we should be avoiding that person. You know, that it's important to know um, what our emotions are telling us. And then, you know, this, another huge reason is going through painful things is growth giving. You know, there's limits on how much pain we want anyone to have to withstand. But what I have seen teenagers either deal with horrible tragedy, which is sometimes unavoidable, or they've made a terrible mistake themselves. Maybe they've cheated at school and gotten caught. It is really hard to watch a teenager go through those things. But almost always they come through it vastly more mature, more broad-minded, much more um, thoughtful about how they want to be in the world or the kind of person they want to be. And you don't see that kind of growth when everything's going well. So there's a lot to be said for adults having tolerance for teenage distress so that we can help them build tolerance for distress and then strategies for managing it. They don't just have to sit there in pain. We want mm -hmm. them to be able to manage it well. But that's challenging. Like I know when my kids have done stuff, they know they shouldn't. You have this like desire to protect them and punish. Them. I mean, it's it's very conflicting as a parent. And I think the older they get, the more sometimes we worry about also how it reflects on us. Right. To your point about a kid cheating on a test or something. Um, any advice for parents on how to sort of like take themselves out of that emotional equation a little bit? It's really hard, right? And it's hard to be a steady presence when, in fact, you are yourself quite upset. So every parent of a teenager needs someone they can turn to for support. Sometimes it's their partner. Sometimes it's a very dear friend. But nobody should be parenting a teenager feeling like they are doing it without any backup because you're going to need backup. But I think the key thing that we want to remember that can help make it easier for us to allow kids to find their way through painful experiences is that when kids know that they can do that, know that they can have a painful emotion and work their way through it, the outcome of that is they enjoy a great deal of freedom because it means they can put themselves in situations where they're not really sure how it's going to go. And if it doesn't go well, they know they can handle it. Whereas kids who have to be guaranteed comfort, who need to know that things are going to go just the way they're hoping, end up on very narrow and constrained paths. So part of why we want to tolerate distress in our teenagers and help them learn how to do the same is so that they can actually have all the autonomy they deserve. We're talking with Dr. Lisa DeMora, clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. And I want to bring in some of our callers. First up is Sylvia in Oakland. Sylvia, go ahead. Hello. Good morning. Um, so I had a question um, really um, to, to ask about the book. Um, would you recommend teenagers actually read the book themselves or as a parent, do we kind of keep it to ourselves? Um, I'm asking because I have a 14-year-old daughter who has recently expressed a lot of angst and um, emotional distress over not having 
feeling like feeling hopeless as if she's not going to ever have the relationship or the friendships that she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really starting to kind of worry me um, because she, la- she lashes out a lot more. And then she also goes into herself, as you mentioned, that girls do. Yeah. So, <laughs> Great question, <laughs> Sylvia. Question. And, I mean, uh, Lisa Demore, I think friendship is often a huge challenge for not just adolescents, all of us, right? Absolutely. So to the question of whether teens should read it, um, I can say I've never written anything I wouldn't want a teenager to read. I wouldn't want them to have heard me say. Um, But I do feel like the main audience for this book is parents so that we can really be there as teenagers go through adolescence, so we can be the sort of supportive containing force that we want to be for them. Um, But on the topic of friendship and on the topic of feeling despairing about how how it might unfold over time. One of the things I take up in the book is that teenagers, by their nature, can have a hard time maintaining a sense of perspective, um, that their feelings are powerful, their experience is short. Um, I certainly remember, I don't know if you remember, having moments as a teenager where the upset moment I was in felt like it was going to last forever and go in all directions. And so one of the things that adults provide teenagers is a sense of perspective, is um, a long view on things. And one of the strategies I offer for doing that that can help teenagers is to say to them, what would you say to your friend if she were saying to you what you're saying to me right now? And so often they can summon all sorts of really excellent advice and perspective and help themselves feel better in the process. Yeah. Thank you, Sylvia, for that call. We have another caller, uh, Kyle from East Palo Alto. Kyle, go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, my wife is a high school teacher, and she's seen this firsthand from, like, I don't know, because she started teaching in, like, 2008. Um, But she's noticed that the kids have been more stressed out, like, year after year. And part of it is I think that we ask a lot more of teenagers Um, than we have in the past. Like, I don't think a lot of adults remember what it was like to be in high school. And so it's like, well, you had homework. It was stressful. Like, I did too. But the amount of time that they're asked to spend outside of school on schoolwork has increased, like, just over and over. And so we keep adding time outside of school that's also stressful. Like, you have to get this assignment done or whatever. And... Um, it, it just piles up and they don't ever get a, a chance to like decompress. They don't have any time to themselves. Yeah. So thanks, Kyle. That's really um, a great point. Uh, Lisa, do you have any response to that? Is that something you see? It is something we see. And it's one of the explanations we put on the table when we look at rising mental health concerns in teenagers is that we do ask a huge amount of teenagers compared to what we've asked of past generations. And I just had a daughter, I have a daughter who's a freshman in college. And as she went through the college application process, I remember thinking, I did so much less in high school to try to apply to college than she had to do or did do as part of the process. And um, I think that the key in that caller's thinking was like, they don't really get a chance to recover. That We can all withstand a fair bit of stress, but that is contingent on having the chance to rest and recover. And a lot of teenagers are so busy that that's not available to them. 
Definitely. Um, all right. Well, one thing we I, d- I did want to get into a little bit is the question um, of how to handle, you know, suicidal ideations and other things. And we actually have a caller, um, Heather from Napa, who wanted to comment on this. Heather, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Um, I just, well, one comment is, you know, as a parent, um, I had a daughter that really struggled with mental health issues. Um, and then I also had a niece that was suicidal, and we had a couple of uh, suicide attempts with her. Um, and it's it's really hard to try and find the resources for parents and family members to support somebody when they're in the throes of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the other things that we saw with both of the girls was they really had a lot of digestive and stomach issues um, prior to going, you know, being depressed and then suicidal. And I'm wondering if she's, if the doctor has seen any links between like digestive and gut health and uh, mental health issues, or if she thinks that the mental health issues bring on, hmm. you know, stomach yeah. issues with, with the kids. Great questions, Heather. So uh, both questions of, of resources, but also this question of gut health. Yeah. We are in a place where we do not have the clinical workforce that we need to care for teenagers in the way that they deserve. Um, Treating teenagers is actually a pretty specialized part of work. And so those of us who cared for teenagers before the pandemic were always more busy um, than we needed, you know, wanted to be. And that then got much worse in the pandemic. So I, I empathize deeply with families who are really worried about their kids and are unable to um, get the resources they need. And and I, I think that's a very real thing um, that we're still struggling with. As for the gut health question, it's not an area I specialize in, but I think one of the things we've long known to be true is there's a very, very powerful link between the mind and the body. And um, when we have an anxiety reaction, which is a very ancient, you know, sort of built-in reaction to all humans, One of the things that happens automatically when we have a very strong anxiety reaction is that our digestion stops, that our body pulls the brake on the digestive process. And this is rooted in old um, evolutionary biology of, you know, if you're trying to run away from a tiger, you don't want to stop for a bathroom break. So (laughs) the whole thing stops. And then after the period of, um, you know, intense anxiety passes, the whole digestion process starts up again and often starts up again quite urgently. And so we, understand well why it is that sometimes when people have pretty intense anxiety, they often also have gastrointestinal concerns. And um, I can tell you as someone who cares for teenagers, they really appreciate understanding the biology underneath it. Um, Even though they don't appreciate the gastrointestinal concerns, it helps them to feel somehow more in control when they have an explanation for why their stomach may get caught up in the process when they are having um, upset feelings. Absolutely. We have another question from a listener who says, I have a 13-year-old eighth grader. I recently became aware of text messages she sent to her friends in the fall that indicated suicide ideation. Things like, I wanted to end my life when? When I talked to her about them, she said that was in the past and she's fine now. In the context of the conversation, it seemed like she could have been seeking attention, but at the same time, the situation she was dealing with was difficult. What's your advice for how to respond and support her in this context? Um, it's hard to say with specifically about this particular child, but I think 
The handling of um, coming across information like that, asking the child for more, putting it in context, trying to keep lines of communication open, I think is the key thing that we want to do. And again, if any parent has an ongoing concern or a fresh concern about suicidality, they should just ask. Um, it's, it's important to just address those concerns head on, both for the safety of the adolescent and also so that the parent can try to feel calm themselves and serve as a steady presence and not harbor um, tremendous anxieties that you know may be unfounded. So the key in all of this is working to keep lines of communication open with teenagers. And when I think about teenagers' safety, those who have good working relationships with adults are always going to be safer than teenagers who don't feel that they have um, a strong connection or a trusting connection with adults. Absolutely. Another listener once uh, writes, I was a teacher for 10 years in elementary school. What are your thoughts in starting this conversation and how to connect with kids earlier than later? What resources would you provide? I really like any work with younger kids that normalizes negative emotions. I think that we want to be really um, forward with kids about talking about how they will feel sad, they will feel nervous, they will feel frustrated. And those feelings are natural and informational and, like I mentioned before, often growth-giving. And rather than trying to give kids the impression that they can and should get to a place where they feel good, I would love for us to focus our energies on how kids help themselves feel better when they're not feeling good and really help kids build out pretty terrific repertoires for managing distress in any variety of ways. But um, to put our emphasis there as opposed to on trying to feel calm or happy or relaxed all the time. Yeah, it's okay to not be okay. Um, Melissa, Melissa writes, I have two teenage daughters. There's an overwhelming amount of focus at our high school on mental health, mental illness, and teens, quote, diagnosing themselves and each other with conditions like OCD and anxiety disorders. I really appreciate you pointing out the difference between mental illness and emotional distress. I feel like we adults in our schools need to emphasize this difference more often and offer more education on everyday coping mechanisms. Um, which I think is totally true. <laughs> you know, I think adults, we're often trying to, you know, work on ourselves. And I've thought about, you know, I, I know we're talking about this stuff more, but mindfulness and practices like that, um, that absolutely kids can be a part of. We are talking about the mental health of teenagers, how we and parents and caregivers and adults can help them with Dr. Lisa Demore, clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. Her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, and she has written several earlier books as well. We do want to hear from you if you have questions about a teen in your life and their if they have anxiety, sadness, or depression, if you have difficulty talking to your teen or questions about when to seek professional help or just want to tell us your story, you can email us to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Dr. Lisa Demore. She is a psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health, and her new book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. You know, we've talked a little bit about that, you know, some of these depression and mental health challenges rates are higher in girls than boys, but you've also talked, uh, Dr. Demore, about the difference in how sort of we as a culture impart the ideas of like emotions and whether it's okay to feel them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about boys and why it's important to have male role models showing them their feelings as not just their moms and, and, and female role models as well. Sure. So one of the things when we that we see when we look at the data on gender and the socialization around emotion is that girls are given a lot more latitude to have a variety of feelings than boys are. Um, Girls comfortably express sadness, and they can also, in our culture, often express feeling angry or frustrated. Whereas boys, as a group, are generally given permission by our culture to express one of two emotions, either anger or pleasure at someone else's expense. But they are not really given a wide berth to express any emotion that might be associated with vulnerability. And one of the challenges that we run into is that as, you know, for boys who are trying to consolidate a sense of masculinity, um, say we'll sort of picture middle schoolers, they can quickly come to the conclusion that talking about feelings, and I'm using finger quotes here, is a girl (laughs) thing to do. Mm. And then if they happen to go home and if in their home, it's the female parent alone, if they have a female parent who is talking about emotions with them, it actually confirms their suspicion that talking about feelings is a girl thing to do. So if we want boys to develop a broader fluency in talking about emotion, the men in their lives really need to step up and be the ones who are doing this with them, whether it's um, a parent in the home or a coach or a teacher. But until boys see adult men talking about their emotions, including and perhaps especially their vulnerable emotions, they will not believe that this belongs to them. And when it's only the women around them who are doing it, it will actually, I think, sometimes even backfire and confirm for boys that this is actually not something that boys do. (sighs) That's a hard one. (laughs) Boys, right? We're all trying to... um... 
you know, and you can only control yourself, but obviously having these conversations is important. Uh, another thing um, we're getting some questions about and I wanted to ask you about is how to get teens to open up, to confide in you if they aren't willing to. And um, Carrie writes, can you offer advice for getting a teen to participate in therapy if they're against the idea? So uh, how do you approach that? Like just getting a kid to be part of this conversation? So let's start with the therapy question and then just take the question of how do you get teens to talk at all? Mm -hmm. Um, So when it comes to therapy and recommending therapy to a teenager, one of the things I always bear in mind is something I learned early in my training and I didn't believe it when it was taught to me, which is that um, one of my supervisors said, you know, all teens secretly worry that they're crazy, that there's something really wrong with them. And I was skeptical at first, but I've come to see where she was coming from, which is that teenagers do have emotions that are more powerful than when they were younger. And their ability to think about the world changes really, really quickly and adds a whole bunch of new dimensions. And that can all be pretty unsettling for them. And so then when an adult in the most loving way says, you know, I think you should talk to somebody, I think for some teenagers, it confirms a worst fear, right, that there's something really wrong. So when I am hopeful that a teenager will consider therapy, the kind of language that I use is to say, look, for what you are up against, you deserve more support than you have. Let's get you more support because what you're going through, anybody in your shoes would need more support. And you deserve a pro, not just someone who does this, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as, you know as a hobby, right? You need somebody who's really good at this. So that can be one way to go about it. Um, But getting teenagers to talk in general is actually one of my favorite topics because it happens all the time that parents ask terrific questions at dinner or after school and get absolutely zilch back from their kid. You know, they'll say, how was school? And the kid says, oh, it's fine. What happened? Nothing. But something I discovered in working on this book and that I write about in the book is that it's enormously common for teenagers to wait until their parents are in bed to want to suddenly have conversations, to show up and be all chatty. And as I discovered that this was happening in many, many homes, I started to think about, well, what's this tell us? And I think what it tells us is that teenagers are brilliant and they find ways to satisfy competing priorities. So one priority is to be as independent as possible and not answer questions on everybody else's schedule. And the other priority is to connect with the adults who love them. And so when they wait until their parent or parents are in bed, what teenagers can do is they can decide if there's going to be a meeting. So they're maintaining their independence. They also set the agenda for the meeting because what teenagers have told me, and I love this, they say, you know, at that time of night, my parents don't ask nearly so many questions (laughs) and they don't introduce new topics. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because they're trying to go to sleep. And then if the teenager feels that the conversation has come to the point where they want it to end, all they have to do is say, okay, good night. Mm walk away. So not all teenagers are nighttime talkers, but there are kids who are only car talkers or they're only text talkers. And so given that they are so organized around autonomy, as the adults who love them, we want to meet them more than halfway. I mean, I think that's actually good advice for probably all humans. Right? <laughs> like people want to have these conversations often on their own terms, not when it's convenient for you. I, it struck me as as I was reading that part that like I, I have friends like that as well. Right. We have to be respectful of when people want to open up. It can't always be kind of on cue. Yep. Uh, 
Um, we have a, another caller who has a question for you. Maria in San Francisco, go ahead. Hi, I have a question. What do you do when your teenage child, almost 18, meets a new girlfriend who is jealous and tries to alienate them from the family? Great question, Maria. Thanks for the call. Uh, Dr. Lisa Damore, what do you think? Well, there's a few ways to go at this. One is we want to be talking with our teenagers about what healthy romances look like. And um, there are some terrific online resources to um, or, you know, kind of become familiar with and to share with teenagers. There's um, joinonelove.org has terrific uh, detailed explanations of what makes for a healthy versus an unhealthy relationship. And the other thing that we want to do is talk with teenagers about how being with that person makes them feel, whoever they're with. And in our healthy relationships, friendships, or romances, those relationships make us feel safer and more expansive and more engaged and invested in the world. And so if this young person is perhaps feeling like his world is narrowing as a result of this relationship, the parent might want to point that out. And, and see if the teenager himself is in a little bit of conflict about it. Great question. Um, we are getting a lot of comments on social media as well, including one that says social media has made teens who are always self-conscious, hyper aware of how they're viewed and what other people think of them. Another listener writes, my kids were both suicidal during the lockdown and it took a long time and much angst and energy to get them through that. It got to the point sometimes I didn't know how I could help going, but I knew if I didn't, they would sink. I'm so happy to tell other parents who are going through this that we did get through it. My kids are now in a much better place. One of the big challenges in the moment is to know that when they get sad, it can be the kind of healthy emotion the guest is talking about. It can be hard for them to know the difference, too. But I would assume this message, too, of like you're talking about that this isn't a forever state is really important, not just for teenagers, but parents to understand as well. I think so. And I also feel like the pandemic just really rocked us all, you know, rocked teenagers, rocked parents. And I have so much empathy for parents raising teenagers right now who are looking at their kid having a very hard day or maybe a meltdown in their kitchen that it's got to be really hard for parents to think, okay, is this typical and expectable or is this a sign that things are really bad or that we're back where we were? And so that's what I hope my book can help people sort out. But just one thing to share with this wonderful um, listener about what they've been through, one handy way that psychologists can make the distinction between sadness and depression, and this isn't the only criteria, but it's criterion, but it's a useful one, is that in sadness, you're sad about something and there's a sense of the world somehow being impoverished that, you know, there's been a loss or someone's moved away or something didn't go the way you wanted. Whereas in depression, you're sort of sad about everything. And you're also, um, there's a sense of impoverishment in the self where um, someone who's sad will say, I really am sorry about the way this thing happened. Someone who's depressed will say, I am no good. I am useless. It would be better if I'm not here. And that is actually not a feature of sadness. So as people are trying to figure out how worried to be, if you see a young person talking about how they themselves are no good, that's a time to be concerned. That's great. Great differentiation. Um, 
We have another comment. Vilma asks, as a parent of a teen that was deeply affected by a year of quarantine and the social reckoning of the times this hits home, my parent, my daughter went to a deep, dark place and the crippling anxiety where she cannot physically make it out of the house. We did get her professional help and have been there for her, and she has, thank God, over time turned the page. But there are days she falls back into depression. She either would not let me in or when asked why she's crying says, I don't know. What can I as a parent say or do to help her get through these moments? Well, there are two really important things, I think, for us to address here. The first is that um, avoidance feeds anxiety. So um, there was mention of not leaving the house. And when we went into lockdown, I had um, sort of a double reaction to it as a psychologist. As my first initial reaction was, okay, well, this is really good. It's going to keep us physically safe. But then my second reaction is this is going to be a real problem when it's time to come back into the world. Because when we stay away from the things we fear, our fear of those things actually grows. Mm. So anytime a young person is using avoidance to manage anxiety, the solution actually has to be that they baby step their way back in. The more they avoid, the more anxious they'll become. So I'm glad to hear that this young person is moving back into the world. It also happens that teenagers sometimes cry and they do not know why. Mm -hmm. Um, this can happen at various points in development. It's very common around ages 13 and 14 when their emotions can be especially dysregulated. And it's scary to the teenager. It can be scary to the parent. But one thing that can help under times like that is to say, okay, well, you're clearly upset. What would help you feel better? Would it help you feel better to cry and just have me here with you? Or do you want to see if there's something we can do that might actually help you feel better? Do you want to go for a walk outside? Do you want to find a way to, you know, get your mood into a different place? So we don't always know what's causing distress, but that doesn't mean we can't go out of our way and encourage young people to take steps to feel better, even without knowing what's really wrong. You are listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim. Well, we have... Uh... Several minutes left with Dr. Lisa Demore, clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. And um, I have a question from a listener, Alita, who says, my daughter is in chef school in Denver and it seems she's drinking. I asked her to go to counseling, but she refused. She's self-medicating. My son dropped out of college and became depressed. He didn't want to be around any more than flirts when I got him a job with the Black Men Co-op with Bicycles and Health. He's better, but my daughter in Denver is worse. I need help, please. I mean, this is getting, it probably gets even more challenging, right, Lisa, when kids leave the house and you're not, you know, you can't sort of monitor the day to day. And they're adults. It is. It's very hard. Um, and our our power as parents diminishes as our kids age. And we really do have to rely on them to um, take seriously that it is their job to care for themselves. Um, and so, you know, we can offer suggestions, we can offer our support, we can offer resources if we have them. But I also think that as we um, come to the end of another school year before too long, and as parents are thinking about kids who may be getting ready to leave home, one of the things that we always want to do is to not confuse high school graduation with college or after college, you know, after high school readiness to be out in the world alone, that in order for kids to go off on their own, what they need to be showing us is that they know how to take care of themselves and understand that to be their jobs. And if a parent has doubts about that, I think it's worth um, considering trying to keep that kid close to home for a little while until those things are sorted out. 
Absolutely. All right. We also have a call from Amber in Antioch. Amber, go ahead. Hi, I love this topic. It's like one of my favorite things. Um, this is amazing information. And I just wanted to hearken back to when she was talking about um, how to communicate with your kids when they have something difficult. I have a 17-year-old daughter. And one thing that I did was I have an index card that I keep in a drawer. And on the index card, it says, um, please present this card to me when you are struggling with something and you're afraid of my reaction. I promise you that I will not yell. I will not judge you. I will not get angry. We will talk about it, and I will help you through it. And several times she has gone and get, got that, uh, take, taken that card out of the drawer and handed it to me in tears. And I always think, oh, no. But it just opens up the ability for us to have a dialogue about something that she's really struggling with and is concerned about telling me. So I just wanted to put that out there for any other parents who, who might think that that's a good idea because it has really worked for my daughter and I for many years. Thank you so much, Amber. What do you think, Dr. Lisa Demora? That sounds like a good idea. I love it. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I have nothing to add. I just want to give another version of that that um, the parents might, I would encourage all parents to say to their teenagers, which is to say to them, we will never, ever, ever make you sorry that you have asked for our help. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, that, that yeah, that it's just so good to have sort of a, a, a level playing field there where they, they feel that they can come to you. All right, just a couple minutes left, but I want to bring in Kavit uh, from San Jose. Kavit, go ahead. Oh, hi there. Um Again, love this topic. I think we should be talking more about mental illness and uh, how we manage that. I have two boys, um, and they've been in therapy for the last um, four or five years, and we both have a great relationship. One thing, over the last few years that I've observed, especially within their friend circle and also within our external family, is this concept of mental illness, emotional distress, tend to be a topic of stigma. And I wonder, as parents, um, especially your, when you're dealing with extended families or even their friend circle where, and especially in communities like Asian community where this topic is often a discussion that people want to avoid, how do you bring that up and how do you educate that it's okay to talk about this? And it is something that, as parents, we should be more involved uh, and then have those open conversations, build those mm -hmm. relationships with, uh, with kids. Thank you, Kavit. That's a great question. And we have just a minute left, Dr. Damore. So our kids pay very, very close attention to how we talk about anything. And so when parents are wanting to reduce the stigma around a given topic, such as mental health, they should capitalize on opportunities to um, talk openly about, say, a colleague or a friend who went through a hard time um, had a mental health struggle, got the support that was deserved and warranted and appropriate and got better. Um, those sort of hopeful and above board conversations that we have in front of kids signal to them very, very strongly that there is nothing to be ashamed of if they are struggling with their feelings. And, um, and again, they will never make them sorry that they asked for our help. 
That was Dr. Lisa Demore, clinical psychologist who specializes in adolescent mental health. Check out her new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She also has an excellent podcast called Ask Lisa. Earlier books uh, that she wrote include Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. Dr. Demore, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thanks for calling in. You've been listening to Forum. Have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.